here in our congregation, we have a few families who have a problem that's similar to a problem that my family has. So just over here, we have the young family, but John has already passed his 50th birthday. Right, that's not young. Then back in the back, we have the Spears. I've never seen Randy and Rosalie with any pointy Stone Age weapons, though, right? And of course, we're the newcomers, and we've been around for a long time. If you have names like this, you've heard all the jokes and puns a thousand times. And occasionally, I meet people who think that I'm not joking, but seem genuinely confused, and they say, oh, I thought you just meant you were here for the first time. Now, I find this really hard to believe. I mean, I really doubt that you know, when Graham goes to college in the fall and he introduces himself, he's not going to say Graham Newcomer as a way to show that he's there for the first time. Right? No one talks like that. But my cynicism aside, I want to talk today about names and the name of Jesus. And really what I want to talk about are titles, the title Christ. What I'm concerned that we see today is that the title Christ is not Jesus's last name. This morning provides a helpful reminder as we look at Luke chapter 4. Here in Luke 4, Jesus proclaims to us that he is God's anointed. He is the Christ, which means he's the one that God has specifically anointed to come and save and rule. That is what it means to call him the Christ. The revelation that Jesus is the Christ is, in a sense, an encapsulation of the gospel itself. And this title, Christ, presents us or demands of us a response. Will we submit to Christ or reject him? You could say that I've already given the punchline of the sermon, but as we go through this passage, I think we see Christ revealed in surprising ways. First of all, if we see that Jesus preaches the Christ. Jesus preaches himself as the Christ. And then we see that Christ demands a response. And we see some surprising responses. So those will be our two main headings. We'll look at how Jesus preaches the Christ. And then we'll look at the responses to Christ here in Luke chapter 4. So if you want to write down the points, those are them. Jesus preaches the Christ, and we'll look at the way that Christ provokes a response. Now last week we looked at Jesus' identity. We looked at the end of chapter 3 and the beginning of chapter 4, and we saw that Jesus is the long-awaited seed of the woman, the new Adam, who would crush the head of our great enemy, the devil. But a key aspect of Jesus' identity in that passage is that he is the anointed one. So in the baptism, that's really the focus, is the Spirit descending upon Jesus, the Holy Spirit descending upon Jesus as if it were a dove and anointing him with God's power. And then after that anointing in the baptism, we see the effects of Christ's anointing. So if you were to just read through, starting at Jesus' baptism, you would see over and over again an emphasis on Christ being full of or led by the Holy Spirit. So when Christ is going out to the wilderness to be tempted by the Satan, chapter 4, verse 1 says that he was 
full of the Holy Spirit and led by the Holy Spirit into the wilderness to confront the devil. When the temptation is over, we read that Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit to Galilee to teach in their synagogues. So Jesus is ruled by the Spirit. In John chapter 3, verse 35, John says this about Jesus. For he whom God has sent utters the words of God, for he gives the Spirit without measure. So Jesus is the one who has this special blessing of the Spirit without measure. And Luke shows that he's in perfect agreement with John in the way that he describes Jesus. Jesus has an anointing with the Holy Spirit like no other man ever enjoyed. And it's in the Spirit's power that he preaches and teaches throughout the synagogues of Galilee, including the synagogue of Nazareth, the little village where Jesus grew up. The story of Jesus' visit to Nazareth begins in chapter 4, verse 16. And he goes to the synagogue and reads the scroll of the prophet Isaiah. And he chooses a passage from that scroll that expands on what it means for Jesus to be the one anointed by the Spirit. So this theme of the Spirit continues. Let's read, beginning in Luke chapter 4. We're going to go back and pick up verse 14 and read through now verse 19. Listen to God's word. And Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit to Galilee, and a report about him went out throughout all the surrounding country, and he taught in their synagogues, being glorified by all. And he came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up, and as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, and he stood up to read, and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. This is God's word. We'll talk more about what those verses from Isaiah mean in a minute, but it's worth stopping to note there's a lot of drama in this scene. So when Luke is introducing Jesus, he stretches it out for us. Jesus stood up. The scroll was brought to him. He unrolled the scroll and finds the place to read. Then he reads. Now let's pick up in verse 20 and see how the drama continues. And he, talking about Jesus, rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, Today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. And all spoke well of him and marveled at the gracious words that were coming from his mouth. And they said, Is not this Joseph's son? So Jesus here uses this passage from Isaiah to proclaim the Christ, the anointed one. If you read Greek, you would see in that word anointed something like in Christen. It looks like Christ. And we don't have to wonder whether this Old Testament prophecy is about Jesus or not, because Jesus just tells us, today this scripture is fulfilled in your presence with every eye on him. He is the anointed one, anointed by the Spirit of the Lord. And he says he's been anointed to preach good news. To the poor, 
He's been anointed to preach the gospel. And this gospel is good news to the poor, liberty to captives, and recovery of sight to the blind. So Jesus is the spirit-anointed preacher of Isaiah chapter 61. When we read Isaiah, something else becomes clear. And that is that the spirit-anointed preacher is not just a preacher. He prophesies and he actually accomplishes the things that he prophesies about. I just want to read a few more verses from Isaiah 61, and hopefully you can see how this kind of change happens in the middle of verse 2. You can turn, to me, turn, turn with me there if you want. Isaiah 61, we'll read verses 1 through 4. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me, because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. That's where Luke's quotation ends. And the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn, to grant those who mourn in Zion, to give them a beautiful headdress instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, the garment of praise instead of a faint spirit, that they may be called oaks of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that he may be glorified. They shall build up the ancient ruins. They shall raise up the former devastations. They shall repair the ruined cities, the devastation of many generations. Somewhere between verse 2 and 3 of Isaiah 61, the speaker transitions from describing something that he is proclaiming to something he will do. He will grant something to those who mourn in Zion. He will give them a beautiful headdress instead of ashes. And he will empower them in such a way that they will build up what's been devastated. So the speaker of Isaiah 61 promises not only that good things are going to happen, but promises to bring them about, to bring about this reversal of fortunes to those who hear him. Those who are oppressed and brokenhearted and torn down shall be called oaks of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that he may be glorified. God is going to do something through this speaker, through this preacher. And these are all just various ways of describing God's saving work. And Jesus is presented here as the fulfillment of all those promises. So it's through Jesus' preaching and through his powerful work that salvation comes. Jesus is anointed by God's Spirit to be the Christ who does these things. To be the Christ who proclaims and accomplishes God's saving work. But we need to work a bit more to make sure we understand the nature of this saving work. Isaiah calls it good news to the poor. It's tempting to interpret this as if, well, this is just a a good message for people who don't have a lot of money. But the word poor is using that metaphor to describe a a spiritual condition, spiritual bankruptcy. I had Michael read for us the Beatitudes because we capture this when Jesus says, blessed are the poor in spirit. So the good news is for those who are poor in spirit and for those who mourn, Because of the power and presence of sin. People who have that awareness, they are comforted. 
People who know that they are bound and under the reign of sin and death, they are promised freedom from captivity. And Jesus, again, is anointed to proclaim this freedom and to do the liberating work that's required to free sinners from death. All this is wrapped up in what Jesus means when he proclaims himself to be the Christ. So if you're here this morning and you know yourself to be enslaved to sin, the good news here is that Jesus the Christ came to free you. If you're grieved because of your sin, if you're overwhelmed because you know that you keep returning to it, Jesus came to turn grief into gladness for those who repent and believe in him. For those who are blinded by the deceitfulness of sin, Jesus came to open eyes by the power of a spirit. For those who are weighed down by guilt, who know that they stand condemned, Jesus came to justify you before God, to turn you into an oak of righteousness. The end of Isaiah chapter 61 says that for as the earth brings forth its sprouts and as a garden causes what is sown in it to sprout up, so the Lord God will cause righteousness and praise to sprout up before all the nations. A promise from life, for life to come. God will create this life. Jesus is the one who does this. Jesus the Christ, the anointed one. Now at this point in Jesus' ministry, the emphasis is falling on the preaching more than the powerful work. Although even in the passage, as it unfolds, we're going to see a lot of powerful work on display too. But what I want you to see is that Jesus preaches the Christ. He preaches himself as the Christ. The one who comes to preach and prophesy and the one who comes to accomplish this work as prophet, priest, and king. So Jesus preaches the Christ and Jesus provokes a response. Where we stopped reading in Luke chapter 4, we see that the initial response that Jesus provoked was really positive. Verse 22 of Luke chapter 4 says, And all spoke well of him and marveled at the gracious words that were coming out of his mouth. But what comes in just a few verses is dramatically different. By the power of the Spirit, Jesus discerns that there is a problem in Nazareth. And so he pokes his finger on the problem. Let's read what he says beginning in verse 23. And he said to them, Doubtless you will quote to me this proverb, Physician, heal yourself. What we have heard you did at Capernaum, do here in your hometown as well. And he said, Truly I say to you, no prophet is acceptable in his hometown. But in truth I tell you, there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah, when the heavens were shut up three years and six months, and a great famine came over all the land, and Elijah was sent to none of them, but only to Zarephath in the land of Sidon, to a woman who was a widow. And there were many lepers in Israel, but in the time of the prophet Elisha, he was sent to none of them, but only Naaman the Syrian. I think I skipped something there. Hold on one second. He says, And there were many lepers in Israel in the name of the prophet Elisha, and none of them was cleansed, but only Naaman the Syrian. So Jesus provokes the Nazarenes with this, with this word, and he does so in two steps. 
So step one is to say that the Nazarenes want him to do the same kind of miracles as he's done in Capernaum. This is interesting in Luke that Luke intentionally presents Nazareth first, even though clearly some of his works in Capernaum have already been done and are known. But they know about this and they want him to do the same things. And he, he just puts it out there to them. He's preached to them, but their wonder at his words is little more than polite flattery. What they really want were the healings and the exorcisms. So they want the signs. They want the power. And Jesus points that out. He tells them that no prophet is favored or acceptable in his own hometown. And he he knows their hearts. So that's step one. Step two is to further elaborate on the Nazarene problem. In step two, he says that Nazareth's big problem is that she is like unbelieving Israel at Israel's worst. And to make his points, he cites two events from 1 and 2 Kings that involve these great prophets Elijah and Elisha. These two prophets ministered at some of the lowest of the low points in Israel's history. So just take the first example, the one from Elijah's ministry to the widow of Zarephath. You can find this in, in 1 Kings chapter 17. Elijah's ministry is right up against and in the midst of the the reign of King Ahab over Judah. So you read about King Ahab, you're told he was the worst king that Judah had had to date. He married a foreign woman, the evil Jezebel. He also rebuilt the city of Jericho. And it explicitly says he earned on his family the curse that Joshua had said would come to the one who rebuilt Jericho. He actually earned a greater curse in that both Ahab's first and youngest sons were struck down by the Lord. So Jesus evokes this time as he's talking to his neighbors from Nazareth. You can maybe see why they were offended. No one would want to be associated with Israel under Ahab's reign. And Jesus evokes these two examples to describe instances where the Lord intentionally withheld his blessing from Israel. And so instead of blessing Israel in these specific ways, the Lord takes his blessing and he pours them out on on foreigners. so, So Ahab had married Jezebel, the daughter of the Sidonian king, Well, Elijah goes to Sidon, where he does this miracle. A miracle that he didn't do in Israel, despite there being a lot of need in Israel. He goes and he ministers and he gives her the the oil that doesn't run out. And he, he raises her son from the dead. And then similarly, Elisha. He heals Naaman the leper, this Syrian enemy of God's people. And that story is especially fascinating because Elijah's assistant goes out at the end to try to get some money from Naaman, and Naaman's leprosy comes upon Elijah's assistant. Like the leprosy of Naaman the Gentile has been transferred on to Israel. So Jesus is talking here to not of that gathering in the village jail, right? He's not on the outskirts of town with all the great sinners. He's talking to the synagogue in Nazareth, and he's telling them, You are like idolatrous Ahab. You want to see the power of God upon you, but the power of God is not coming because of your unbelief and your rebellion against God. Yeah, the power of God is showing up in Capernaum, but it is not showing up here because of your sin and rebellion. And this makes the Nazarenes furious. 
So before he says this, they're speaking well of him. What gracious words you speak. The hometown boy has done good. But now, verse 28, when they heard these things, all in the synagogue were filled with wrath. And they rose up and drove him out of the town and brought him to the brow of the hill on which the town was built so that they could throw him down the cliff. But passing through their midst, he went away. It's an amazing turn. It doesn't matter if this boy, this speaker is Joseph's son or if he's God's anointed son. They are not going to tolerate what he's just said to them. They won't tolerate being told that they are sinners in need of new life. But before we think more about their response, we should think a bit more about how Jesus preaching from Isaiah and this provocation from Elijah and Elisha go together. Because it's pretty easy to respond positively to the Isaiah message. right? Comfort, restoration, healing, liberation. Like the Nazarenes, we like all of those gracious words. Those sound really good to us. And when we hear them, we're tempted to think that they mean, well, Jesus is just going to come and in his power take away all my problems. All the bad stuff in my life is going to be kind of erased by this powerful Jesus. That seems to be how the Nazarenes heard these words. They knew he could heal and do miracles, and they wanted to see them. So when we hear Jesus this way, we're bringing to him a demand. Where's my miracle, Jesus? This way of hearing Jesus brushes past the gospel that he's preached. Because when we hear Jesus this way, we want to simply benefit from his power. We want his good news, but on our own terms. When we, failed, when we come to Jesus this way, we fail to ask the question, why do we need the good news Jesus proclaims? We can imagine Nazareth being a pretty small village, probably were mainly composed of poor people. So they knew their, their physical poverty, but they did not believe they were spiritually bankrupt. They didn't believe they were like King Ahab. Perhaps they saw themselves as annoyed by, by Rome's oppression. Perhaps they saw themselves as being annoyed even by the, the religious elites in Jerusalem. They might have hated that, but they didn't want to face the truth that they were slaves to sin. They thought they had no problems with their own eyesight, but they would love to see some blind guys healed. Let's see, see some of that, Jesus. Isaiah chapter 61, verse 2, the prophet says he's come to proclaim both the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance for our God. One of our big problems is that we all want the Lord's favor, but no one wants to admit that we deserve the Lord's vengeance. You see, humility and repentance are required to truly hear the good news Jesus proclaimed. We have to recognize who we are, where we are. That we need the kind of salvation and restoration from sin and death that Jesus is talking about in Isaiah 61. We need Jesus because we've made a mess of our lives with our sin. Our lives are devastated and need to be rebuilt by his saving power. Jesus' provocative preaching is, is part of his preaching. We're all guilty before our God. 
Our hearts are, are blinded by sin. We're enslaved by it. And we need him to do a new work in our lives. In short, we need to hear that our sin problem is far worse than we think. Are you willing to hear that message from Jesus? Or does his provocation just anger you? Let's look more specifically at the Nazarene response. We've done this already a little bit, but we just want to linger here a minute longer. Again, their first response is flattery, but then they quickly turn to murderous wrath. Now, despite the fact that Jesus was God's anointed, they they don't seem to mind that at all. That doesn't factor into their murderous wrath. They're ready to kill him because he's refused to do these miraculous works and because he's indicted their unbelief. I think this kind of flip-flopping response is helpful for us to see because we're often going to be talking to people in our community who speak well of Jesus. We have many neighbors who, who say they like Jesus, who think of themselves as having a relationship with Jesus. They might say they're Christians. But when you press a bit on their Christianity, it becomes clear that they've not really heard him. They've heard his gracious words, but they've ignored his provocative message. So when we preach the gospel, we need to be careful to present the truth about sin. We might need to ask some more questions beyond just, do you have a relationship with Jesus Christ? What does that mean to you? How are you following him? Are you daily repenting and trusting in his grace for salvation? We need to be careful not to talk about the graciousness of God and rip it out of its context. God's grace is for people who know they're guilty of sin. God's grace comes to us as we repent of sin and receive it by faith in Jesus. And we know only the Holy Spirit can open someone's eyes to their sin before God, but we have the responsibility to tell them what the scripture says about their standing before God. Secondly, we should be slow to offer assurance to those who make professions of faith. The Nazarene example here in the parable of the sower tells us that there are some people, perhaps many people, who will initially respond well to Jesus, but who will then forsake him, who won't continue on. Uh, I don't know, this doesn't mean we discourage people who have made a profession of faith, that we tell them you should doubt your salvation. But we should assure them in the way that the gospel itself assures them. So we should tell them, all who come to Jesus, he will not cast out. All who repent and believe are saved. Keep coming to Jesus, keep trusting him. Keep repenting of your sin and resting on his grace. As parents, we need to learn to give gospel encouragements to our young kids like this. Encourage them without making definitive pronouncements on their spiritual condition. If you're a child here and you've, if you desire to be a Christian, we're really thankful that you have that desire. If you want to follow Jesus, we want to encourage you. Keep following him. Keep looking to him. Keep trusting him for salvation. Tell Jesus the way you've sinned and trust that when he died on the cross, he paid for your sin. If you believe that Christ died for your sin, you will be saved. And so keep trusting in him for salvation. 
I hope you know, kids, that Jesus is ready to forgive you of your sin when you sin, when you come to him and ask him for forgiveness. Know that he's eager to forgive and he's eager to help you obey as you seek to trust and obey him. I hope you're encouraged to keep following Jesus. The response of the Nazarenes helps us understand how to preach the gospel to ourselves and to those around us. But we see another response after Jesus leaves Nazareth. He goes to Capernaum. And there we see them respond in a slightly similar but different way. Let's read that now. And as we do, let's notice the Capernaum, I'm not sure how to say this, Capernaumites perhaps? Capernaumites response and the other responses we see. Because we see responses from Simon's mother-in-law. And we even see demons responding to Jesus. So let's read beginning in verse 31. And Jesus went down to Capernaum, a city of Galilee, and he was teaching them on the Sabbath. And they were astonished at his teaching, for his word possessed authority. And in the synagogue there was a man who had the spirit of an unclean demon. And he cried out with a loud voice, Ha! What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. But Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be silent and come out of him. And when the demon had thrown him down in their midst, he came out of him, having done him no harm. And they were all amazed and said to one another, What is this word? For with authority and power he commands the unclean spirits, and they come out. And reports about him went out into every place in the surrounding region. And he arose and left the synagogue and entered Simon's house. Now Simon's mother-in-law was ill with a high fever, and they appealed to him on her behalf. And he stood over her and rebuked the fever, and it left her. And immediately she rose and began to serve them. Now when the sun was setting, all those who had, any, who had any who were sick with the various diseases brought them to him. And he laid his hands on every one of them and, set, and healed them. And demons also came out of many, crying, You are the Son of God. But he rebuked them and would not allow them to speak, because they knew that he was the Christ. And when it was day, he departed and went into a desolate place. And the people sought him and came to him and would have had kept him from leaving them. But he said to them, I must preach the good news of the kingdom of God to the other towns as well, for I was sent for this purpose. And he was preaching in the synagogues of Judea. The first response I want you to notice here is the response of the Capernaumites. Luke makes this easy for us because in verse 32 he says, They were astonished at his teaching, for his word possessed authority. And then again in verse 36, they were all amazed and said to one another, what is this word? For with power, with authority and power, he commands the unclean spirits to come out. So they were amazed at Jesus' power and authority and specifically his authoritative and powerful word. So this, again, this response is obviously positive. They're amazed by Jesus' power. But I don't think this tells us very much about the Capernaumites and their faith. Or to put it another way, I think this tells us a lot more about Jesus than it does about the people of Capernaum. We see that Jesus here has authority and power. His word has authority and power. He rebukes and commands and demons come out. He has authority and power that only God has. 
If we think back to Jesus being anointed, think back to our, our catechism question, we confess that he's anointed as prophet, priest, and king. With that in mind, we see here at Capernaum that Jesus is the powerful king. His kingdom is not restricted to just the stuff that we can see on earth. It's a kingdom over the heavenly realms and the spiritual realms of of angels and demons. And it's because of his powerful rule as king that's, that's been started with his baptism that Jesus can save. He's the king who can cast out demons. He's the king that can raise the dead. He's the king that can open the blind eyes of our hearts. By his power, Jesus can restore what's been torn down by our sin. But being amazed at Jesus' power is not the same thing as saving faith. I think we're meant to see that something is lacking in the people of Capernaum. There's an ironic parallel between the Nazarenes and the Capernaumites. They both wanted to prevent Jesus from leaving town. The Nazarites wanted to prevent him by killing him. The Capernaumites just wanted to keep him there so they could have more of his power. They didn't want the show to end. Jesus' power should amaze us, but it should lead us to see there's something more to Jesus than a raw display of power. Remember that the reason Jesus came required him to submit to the power of evil men. Jesus is revealed as the powerful king who willingly suffers and died the death that only a slave would be killed with. He's crucified. Remember when Jesus was arrested in the garden, Peter took took out a sword and cut off the ear of the high priest's servant. And Jesus rebuked him and said, Do you not think I cannot appeal to my father? Or do you think that I cannot appeal to my father and he will send at once more than 12 legions of angels? Jesus had the power to avoid the arrest, and the suffering that he endured. But he didn't use it. In some ways, a greater display of power. The gospel Jesus had to preach, he said he must preach, the reason he was sent to preach, was the message that he, the anointed one, the Christ, must suffer and die so that sinners could be forgiven. His power was displayed in his weakness. So it's good news that Jesus is the powerful king, but we can't let a distorted view of Jesus' power overshadow his mission and his suffering. Is that a temptation for you? Are you tempted to desire the glory of Christ and his power to the point where you downplay the glory of his suffering, where you ignore the shame of the cross? Do you want to be seen as successful and powerful, but never weak? If that's the temptation of your heart, you may be in danger of ignoring the cross. Remarkable thing about Jesus in his powerful coming, in his proclamation of of liberty to the captive, is that Jesus submits to a kind of captivity. He died, was buried. He takes upon himself our sorrows. We sang that in, in our songs this morning. You know, we can commit this error of, of wanting to be powerful both as individuals but also as a church. You know, do we as a church make it clear with our life together that we are Christ's blood-bought people? 
Is that what's clear about us in the way we talk and conduct ourselves? That we've been forgiven much by Christ's death and resurrection? Or do we never really admit any specific sin or weakness? Do we project the image that this is a church for people who mostly have their lives together and have a pretty, pretty good ability to present a nice exterior? Are we a people who have already cleaned up our lives and so we can belong? Or are we a church for sinners who need grace? When we think about this question, we should ask about our relationships in the church. When we talk to each other, what's front and center? Are we centering on the gospel that we share the joy of forgiveness in Christ Jesus? Or are we letting something else crowd the gospel out? Don't make the mistake of the Capernaumites who are merely amazed at Christ's power. The next set of responses I want you to notice from this passage are the responses of the demons and unclean spirits. Ironically, the demons are the most sophisticated theologians of our passage. Look at what the demon-possessed man says to Jesus in verse 34. What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. So he confesses Jesus as the, the man from Nazareth and as the Holy One of God. He would get an A-plus on his Christology exam. In the same vein, we find a summary of what the demons were saying in verse 41. And the demons also came out of many, crying, You are the Son of God. But Jesus rebuked them and would not allow them to speak because they knew that he was the Christ. So here the demons are confessing that Jesus is both the Son of God the divine son and the Christ, the anointed man, God's anointed servant and savior. It's interesting if you look at the word Christ in Luke, it doesn't appear too often. And the, the, the uh, first time it appears is uttered by the angel into the shepherds in chapter two. Next, it is uh, mentioned in regard to Simeon, who was promised by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death until he saw the Lord's Christ. Next, in chapter 3, it's mentioned by the crowds who wonder, might John be the Christ? And now here, in chapter 4, it comes out of the mouth of demons. The next time it will happen is in chapter 9, when Peter will climactically confess that Jesus is the Christ. All that to say, the demons are part of an illustrious group. and You're kind of accepting, accepting the, or the, the crowds who are wondering about John. We have the angel, we have Simeon by the Holy Spirit, we have Peter confessing Christ, and now the demons are confessing the truth that Jesus is the Christ. And they're right. Jesus knows they're right. And so he prevents them from speaking. Jesus is the anointed one who will set the captives free, who will open the blind eyes, who will mend the hearts of the brokenhearted. Now as we're reading along in Luke, this is an important clue for us. Right, we can have our eyes fixed on the Christ. But for Jesus in this part of his ministry, he doesn't want this information spread. And it's not because Jesus was ashamed of who he was, but because it was not yet time for him to, to set his face and to go to Jerusalem and suffer and die. But we also can't pass over the fact that when the demons, demons confess Jesus as the Christ, it's not good news to them. Right? Just like their leader, the devil, the coming of Christ means destruction for them. They know that. 
And Jesus has indeed come to destroy them, to cast them out, to break their power. That Jesus is the Christ is not good news for demons, but it is good news for sinners. Jesus Christ is the prophet who came to preach good news to us. Jesus Christ is our high priest who came to offer up his own life as the perfect sacrifice that pays for our sins. He is the king who rules over us, who conquered our enemies. And as we confessed earlier, he guards us and keeps us in the deliverance he has won for us. That is what it means for Jesus to be the Christ. It is very good news to know this Christ. Do you have the joy of knowing him? The demons show us the stark choice before every person. Either Christ is your terror or he is your comfort. If if you love your own selfish ways more than Christ's righteous ways, then your destruction is promised. He's a terror to you. His righteousness exposes your sin. His justice promises your destruction. But there's another way to respond to having your sin exposed. You can come to Christ in repentance and faith, trusting that his death paid for your sin, and you can be forgiven. You can receive life from him. In our original sinful state, Christ is a terror to all of us. That's how we're all born. But we can be saved by his blood. Now, this may be the most obvious sermon application ever, but here it is. Don't be like the demons. Don't live simply in terror of Christ, but repent of your sins and trust in Christ. The final response I want us to look at is Simon's mother-in-law. The text implies she has a serious illness. It's left her bedridden. And Jesus heals her by his powerful word. Look at verse 38. Now Simon's mother-in-law was ill with a high fever, and they appealed to him on her behalf. And he stood over her and rebuked the fever, and it left her. And immediately she rose and began to serve them. Her response that she immediately arose is evidence of how completely Jesus healed her. Right? When we have a really bad fever, you know, we're in bed for a while, then maybe we make an appearance on the couch for a while, and then then we can get up and start doing the dishes after a couple days. Well, that's that's not what Simon Peter's mother-in-law did, right? She was healed and she served, immediately restored. She got up and she started doing the things she would normally have done when she had visitors in her home. Jesus heals her completely. But her response also demonstrates something else. If we've been saved by Christ, we become his servants. When we think of our relationship to Christ, if we're trusting in him, we think of him as our prophet and our priest and our king, we should think of ourselves as his servants. We are servants of our king. We are servants of the one who came to serve. Think of this as the opposite of what the Nazarenes wanted. They wanted the power of Christ to be displayed in their midst. They believed they were in, that their rightful place was to kind of be on the top of the pyramid 
And they wanted the local boy Jesus to use his newfound power to put them there, right in the center of God's powerful work. But Simon's mother-in-law shows us how we should really relate to Jesus. We're sick with sin. We need his healing. And once healed, we take on the role of servants in Christ's household. We serve Christ. We serve Christ by doing all that he commanded, loving what he loves, imitating his righteousness, loving our enemies, showing his compassion. We've been saved by his sacrifice, and so now we lay down our lives. We sacrifice for his sake. As we confessed again, he is the anointed one, and we are anointed with him by faith. We share in his anointed. We are anointed to serve in imitation of him. So one way to test and see whether you've been saved by Christ is to examine your heart and ask, do I desire to serve him? Is it my joy to be called a servant in Christ's household? And am I seeking to submit to Christ and serve Christ in every area of my life? We also serve Christ by proclaiming his gospel. Jesus is very clear that he was sent to preach the good news. He says he must preach the good news of the kingdom of God. As servants, we have the privilege of joining him in this work. Okay, we don't have the ability to save anyone. We can't open anyone's blind eyes. But we've been entrusted with the powerful word of our king. And we can proclaim the same good news that he proclaimed. And we can proclaim it with the confidence that Jesus saves through his word. So we worship Jesus as the Christ by serving him, by preaching the gospel. Just to be clear, I don't mean preach and standing up here and doing it on Sunday morning. I mean telling others the good news that Jesus is the Christ who's come to save sinners. So church members, serve each other by preaching the gospel to each other. Husbands and wives, serve your spouse by preaching the gospel to them. Parents, preach the gospel to your kids. We can all serve our neighbors and our co-workers by preaching the gospel to them. Preaching the good news that Jesus is the Christ who's come to set the captives free. The fact that Jesus is the Christ is the good news. He came preaching and provoking. He came demonstrating his power. And he came to die in the place of sinners and rise again from the dead. Have you recognized Jesus as the Christ? Have you been saved by him? Are you serving him? Let's pray. Oh Lord Jesus, you are our prophet, priest, and king. We glorify you this morning. We pray for your help to rest in your saving work. We pray that you would tear down any pride that keeps us from coming humbly to you. We pray that you would show us if we're tempted to desire power and glory apart from your sacrificial saving work. We pray for your help to serve you in every way. We pray that you would help us to be a church 
where your name is glorified as we serve each other and preach the gospel. And we ask for this in your great name, Jesus. Amen.